0: You're listening to Reckoning, the go-to resource for conversations about gender-based safety, survival, and resilience in the digital age. Reckoning is brought to you by Garbo. Garbo is on a mission to help proactively prevent harm in the digital age through technology, tools, and education. I'm Catherine Kosmetis, the founder and CEO of Garbo and your host for each episode. In the interest of safety, I want to provide a content warning for listeners as we do discuss some hard subjects on each episode, so please use your own discretion when listening. You can learn more about Garbo and our guests by visiting our website at www.garbo.io. Thank you so much for being here and listening to this episode. Jennifer Gentile Long currently serves as the Chief Executive Officer at Equitas, which she co-founded in April 2009, and serves as an expert on issues related to the prosecution of sexual violence, gender-based violence, and human trafficking. She began her career as an Assistant District Attorney in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where she prosecuted cases involving adults and child physical and sexual abuse, and served on a team in the Family Violence and Sexual Assault Unit. After her departure, she served as an advocate for victims of domestic violence and child abuse in Bermuda and Philadelphia. Jennifer was a senior attorney and then appointed the director of the National Center for the Prosecution of Violence Against Women at the American Prosecutors Research Institute at NDAA. She promoted meaningful multidisciplinary collaboration and improved prosecution practices through authorship and contribution to numerous articles, publications, resources, and curricula, and provided assistance to prosecutors and allied professionals. Jennifer's commitment to the identification, implementation, and preservation of innovative, research-informed practices led her to co-found Equitas, where she continues to work with prosecutors, professionals, and policymakers across the U.S. and internationally. Jennifer also serves as an advisory committee member with the American Law Institute an editorial board member with the Civic Research Institute for the Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence Reports, and an adjunct professor at Georgetown University Law Center where she teaches prosecuting sexual violence from research to practice. Jennifer graduated from Lehigh University with a Bachelor of Arts in English and East Asian Studies and the University of Pennsylvania Law School and Fell School of Government with a Juris Doctor degree and a Master's in Government Administration. She is a member of Pennsylvania and New Jersey Bars and enjoys running, walking her dogs, and making homemade pancakes for her family. Give a little introduction uh, about yourself and for those who might be unfamiliar with your work, uh, what Equitas is.
1: Sure. So my name is Jennifer Long. I'm the CEO of Equitas. Equitas is a nonprofit that's based in Washington, D.C., and we are a collection of advocates and primarily former specialized prosecutors in sexual violence, stalking, intimate partner violence, and human trafficking, who come together to provide expertise, training, and overall support for others in the field on the prosecution of these crimes. And we are really, we work across the United States in all 58 jurisdictions, You know, the states, the territories, District of Columbia, military, federal, we work internationally, and we really consider ourselves the hub of prosecuting these cases. We uh, really try to arm ourselves with the most recent research. We've obviously all been experienced in a variety of jurisdictions across the country, and we work on the ground with practitioners and with survivors. So we know the research, we know what it tells us, and we, you know, rely on our partners and the people we work with to help us know what it doesn't tell us. And just from my perspective, I was a former prosecutor in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I specialized on these crimes. Although when I prosecuted, there wasn't even a human trafficking statute. So when we saw these crimes, and it was primarily, you know, mischaracterized as pimping and street prostitution or interfamilial families selling children or um, Uh, selling other members of the family, we would cobble together the laws on the books at the time to try to address it not as well as we should have and mostly
0: overlooked, you know, many victims. Wow. And you founded the organization or helped founded the organization all the way back in 2009. Which is crazy to think about. And I'm sure it's been quite the journey for you all, Um, you know, the rise of the Internet and the disinformation era that we kind of found ourselves in post 2016. So how has that been like me, too? I mean, just all of it. Right. So how has that impacted the work and what's that journey like been like?
1: Yeah. So, yep, I am one of the proud co-founders. And to just put in some context, we, you know, many of our co-founders have moved on. Some are judges now, some elected prosecutors, other experts across the country. And when I joined, trying to remember what kind of certainly was way before the smartphone. And so I'm thinking about when I prosecuted, even looking back, I think we had intranet, not internet. But it it's interesting. Because with the evolution of everything, it's sort of, there are some truths. I mean, when I started child pornography, although some of it was online, it was also rapists taking pictures, Polaroids, of their victims, of the crimes they were committing. Uh, Same with adult victims. And so you start realizing that with the rise of technology, uh, it just facilitates the crimes that are already happening. Same with misinformation and these movements in some ways, you know, there have been so many people who've come before grassroots to try to raise awareness. I mean, even going back to the 1970s. And so you see a lot of the same themes, sadly. I mean, some of the same myths are there, regardless of how we've progressed, regardless of all these movements. So I think it gives you a healthy uh, understanding that there's no one thing, there's no movement that's going to make all the change. But it also gives you an appreciation for how many People coming together and building on what's happened before can really move change because with each movement, there's greater awareness, there's greater progress, still so much more to be done. Um, But I would just say the co-founding of this um, organization, it's been one of the most meaningful journeys of my life because it was truly founded not only by the co-founders, but by allies in the field who, you know, believed in the fact that we needed a place that could focus on these crimes from the prosecution perspective, because it wasn't there, and outside the whims of associations, outside the whims of politics, just staying true to really ultimately trying to get the response right.
0: Mm. And I'm sure that response, you know, has definitely evolved and changed. And and you know, I always say it's like these are not new problems, right? The internet just exasperated existing problems. Um, you know, whether that is sexual violence, domestic violence, human trafficking, all of these different things, misinformation, like you said, these things have always, always existed. It's just now they can uh, proliferate much, much faster in much, much bigger ways. And so I'm sure that that kind of has has impacted your work. And you touch a little bit about um, uh, the work that, that Equitas does to help ensure effective prosecution of crimes against some of the most vulnerable members of society. So, how, how does the organization actually help make that happen, especially in today's digital age? Like, have you seen any um, rulings or, or it, it, new information around the prosecution of, of these crimes as they go online?
1: Yes. First, answering a first question you asked in terms of how we do this, because I think the fact that we've all come and practiced in different jurisdictions and the fact that there have been others that have come before. There's really um, there's no practicing in isolation. We really try to build off each other's expertise, what we're seeing in the field, emerging issues, and um, then what uh, we see now in gathering technical assistance. And I mean, I think that there's a lot of emerging issues in the area. I mean, with people going online, the image-based abuse, exploit, sex, you know, image-based sexual abuse with either photos that were taken consensually and shared non-consensually or photos taken non-consensually produced. I mean, I think that we've seen a lot of minimization, obviously some gaps in the laws that are available that allow us to hold people accountable. And a lot of, even the way that it's spoken about in the media, I think so many times, again, it's in the verbiage of sex instead of an assault Instead of a crime, instead of, you know, it's beyond just an invasion of privacy, it's criminal in a lot of times in what's being done. And so really trying to map the digital tools that we have, investigative and prosecution tools that help us identify and sort of link um, the sharing of a photo to the bad actor so that it's not just reliant on the victim's testimony, but also just still those same biases, those same myths. That get in the way of jurors, fact-finders, prosecutors taking these cases, taking them forward, knowing how to litigate them and argue them and finding someone guilty, accountable for what they've done. You know, we still have to focus on the basics there too. Again, stop blaming victims uh, for quote unquote putting themselves in situations and understanding that trust whatever has made you vulnerable, trust. You know, an interest in experimenting in something does not pave a pathway to your victimization that leaves someone, um, you know, not culpable for what they've done to you.
0: The the media and the victim blaming is 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 a big one, and and we're seeing often, you know, people people talk about um, cancel culture and things like that, and saying, oh, I can't just call someone out on Twitter, or on Facebook, I have to, you know, oh, they weren't convicted, oh, they weren't prosecuted, oh, they didn't go through the criminal justice system, who are you to um, uh, call them out as as a bad actor? But then we see the reality of the criminal justice system, right, which you've seen all too well in your entire career, you know, being a former prosecutor of gender-based violence offenses and human trafficking and kind of seeing, seeing now where we are today, I'm sure you've seen the crime funnel play out in your own career. For those listeners who might not know what the crime funnel is, it's a visual way to show how a crime makes its way through the traditional criminal justice system. And specifically with gender-based violence, um, you know, studies vary, but it's around less than 25-ish percent will ever report into the criminal justice system. I think it's much lower than that, Uh, especially now in today's age where we don't we have even less trust in that system. And then as it makes its way down the funnel, you see that um, about 7% of uh, of those reports end in an arrest, and then only 1% end in conviction. And oftentimes the conviction is not the real crime, right? pled down for many reasons, plea bargains. I call it whitewashing when men have good lawyers. Usually white men have good lawyers It can get it pled down. Um, So how do you kind of see this, you know, in in your experience and opinion, like why, why does this happen? And are there patterns you've seen on who or what actually makes its way through the system? And then we'll kind of get into like, is there any way to improve that system essentially?
1: Yes, yes. And yes. So, I mean, I think you've done a really good job at distilling the studies. There have been great studies on, you know, the funnel, we call them, the studies call them attrition, basically the weeding out of cases. And we'll talk about sexual violence cases, because when we look at the national research, when we think experientially about what we've seen, it, it maps. And when we, I'll talk a little bit later about how we try to use the research to work with jurisdictions where they are to help them maybe not repeat it. So the most maddening part about the research, and again, I'll just talk about the sexual violence for right now, um, is that the reasons, the factors that seem to pull cases out of the system are the most common factors in cases, right? If you have an individual who's vulnerable, maybe they're using um, substances or they're homeless or you know, sexually exploited women, the greatest rates of violence directed at them and um, serious violence, rape, homicide, assaults a previous relationship with a perpetrator. All of the things that when you do the work and you're experienced in the crimes and when you read about it, when you work with survivors, all the ways we know that perpetrators access their victims, that they identify them, they build relationships with them, they get them to a place where they can perpetrate and when then they know they can silence the victim through the victim's own sense of confusion about the relationship maybe and because of the victim's own behaviors, that are regular behaviors. Again, they have not been the cause of any harm. You know, no one's done anything other than trust and um, maybe make decisions that would put them in a place where there wouldn't be other witnesses. But again, we don't, people are not responsible for what bad actors do when you're alone with them. But yet society continues to blame people for that. So the confluence of all of those things then impacts how a case makes its way through the system. And one thing we've really tried to do, so the research and the I think the stats you you um, pulled from are from Rain probably in their analysis. Yes, the and they're great stats and probably the only ones that are available. Just one thing to remember: I mean, there are no comprehensive statistics across the United States, so we know that there's a gap. Like you said, it's probably way larger than that. But what we've tried to do with the national research, which we've distilled, is to then work with jurisdictions to have them say, okay, because again, unless you're a bad actor, most prosecutors, most individuals in this work, we're not in it to do a bad job. You're in it to do a good job and achieve safety. And I think most people think they're doing a good job. Then it's just a matter of though understanding what your practice actually looks like. So there is the national research. Then we have some methods of encouraging offices to take part in case assessments where they're looking at their own cases, looking at the characteristics, looking at the trends, again, in cases on how the victim, because that's the other thing we talked about race. And in these particular cases, it's not the, the offenders, actually, the racial disparity, there is there is research when there is different race, unfortunately, um because, I mean, there should be no disparity in the system. But when you have a Black or African-American perpetrator and a white victim, that tends to be the disparity. But I, the real weakness, I think, is looking at the impacts and looking at the victim's race, because we think that that's a much bigger driver in where the racial bias is. And it's one that hasn't been prioritized. Um, but when you're looking at these cases, we try to sit with jurisdictions to look at the trends, Then sit with the decision makers, round table a few of them to look at why it's happening. Maybe is it, is it bias? Or maybe if you have cases with um, particular um, complexities, like um, if a victim is intoxicated, do you not have the right knowledge or information on how that actually impacts victims? How you can, what experts you can use, how you can try a case successfully with that, to really try to isolate what the problem is so that they can focus on that. And then overcome it to turn these numbers around. And I would say, I mean, I I feel like we're, and you know, we work with a lot of jurisdictions. It's oftentimes, you know, very confidential and there's a lot of urgency. I certainly don't believe that we've solved anything, but I do believe like the biggest limitation is our reach and our ability to work sustained with jurisdictions because I think we've really found a way to open the eyes of practitioners onto what's happening and help them isolate where the problems are.
0: And I I think that's it. You have to, right? The problems are so widespread, but I would say if you look jurisdictionally, right, especially in counties or or cities or police departments, even the, the victims going in to report these crimes or calling 911 do have probably their own lived experience based on the communities that they come from. Is it a community of color? Um, uh, is it a, a community overrun by drugs or these, you know, other things? Um, and how does that then go into the biases seen within that police department, that reporting system? I mean, I've seen it all too many times what you just said, which is often the biases don't come in the conviction or they don't even look at the offender. If they even get to that point, like that's a pretty far point into it. Right it's usually the victim going in and reporting, like you said. And, and I, have I mean, in my work, and, and I'm sure in your work, we've talked to dozens, if not hundreds of, uh, of survivors um, who who have gone through the system, or at least have tried to report into the system. And you see those biases uh, creep into it. And, and oftentimes, if they do go through this, like they report, right? And then they um, are re-traumatized even then. Are they believed? They're question, I've had people say, oh, well, uh, you know, uh, a person in my life, she was reporting for a stalker at her work who was showing up consistently, really bothering her. Her work was very concerned for her and for- forced her to report to the police to make the the note. And they said, oh, well, they looked in the system and she Had filed for an order of protection against a partner who abused her, which she also lost for biased reasons, we will say. And they said, Well, you lost that, so why would I even believe you? And you're like these two like totally separate things that yet, you know, and so you see this constantly occurring is like you report, if they even take the report seriously, I've gone and and helped people report, and the police don't want to take the report, and you kind of have to know the laws just to get them to take the report. And then that system then uh, kicks in. And myself, I've gone through it, right? I've gone through the, the criminal justice system all the way through. And all I can say is that, and all I've ever heard any survivor who's gone through it is to say it re traumatized them. It really didn't fix anything. If anything, it made it kind of much worse in, in ways. And so, how do you kind of feel about, you know, in your work? you you want to prosecute these and we need to prosecute these guys, but at the at the detriment oftentimes of the victim. How do we kind of reckon with that? So
1: I mean, the first thing I want to say, and I, I'm I'm so I know this is really lacking, I mean, I'm so sorry to hear your experience. And it is an experience that obviously should never occur. The reality is it is does occur because when individuals are harmed, I mean, the first harm that's happened, there's no system, there's really no remedy that's going to undo what has happened. The idea is to try to provide some voice, some avenue for justice, for achieving safety for you, for a community, for having your voice heard, for having someone be held accountable, even if it's just standing beside... um, with the prosecutor elevating your voice and using all of the tools at their disposal to make sure that you are not attacked in a way that's unfairly, although I mean we have we all know that there, are, even the best prosecutor isn't always successful as that. But I, you know, I work in the system, so I ultimately believe in it as the best system and as something that has such power and potential that does not. So having said all of that, though, the urgency, the fact that victims will be harmed in it, or even one victim is harmed in it, would be you know, something unacceptable and something we'd always want to work at. When we think about the system and what it can provide, particularly for people who have no voice, and I've had, I mean, I think you're right, I recount, and mostly I think you recount the... The things in your career you wish you did differently, you wish you did better. I mean, I would say that's how I look back on my career. And even in those cases where we have um, had good outcomes, there were times when you would watch what would happen to a victim in a courtroom Despite all of your efforts, despite all of your strong advocacy, what was allowed to happen either by judge or what the defense did in that room would really make you walk out of the room and question, too, what was worth it. That's the one side that's the horrific side. On the other side, I've had the privilege of sitting with people who really don't have anybody um, or who had may have had family who turned their back on them or really were in, uh, you know in a community where they were shunned for making the report. And where perhaps they were devalued as um, not being worthy of reporting the rape again. Maybe they were prostituted individuals. If they were abused, maybe their demeanor when they reported, they normalized it, they minimized it. But they had law enforcement who took it forward and investigated the case. Prosecutors who were not willing to just throw the case away, but to go forward. To stand up, to say that, you know, to sit and allow the victim in a public forum to talk about exactly what had happened to them, to push back on defense attempts that are really despicable. Um, I understand that there's advocacy that has to be done, but what can happen in those rooms, the stated and unstated worthiness of a victim? I've seen it up front, I've fought it up front. And to have that, com- that relationship with the victim, I mean, you're a prosecutor, this isn't a client, you're moving for justice. But to stand by, side by side with someone who has suffered one of the most horrific assaults that can ever be suffered, and to stand with them to say what happened to you wasn't right, that you do deserve a voice, that you deserve to be safe, and that you have contributed to something that might keep another victim safe, I think was really important and valuable. And in some ways, reinforcing to the people in the room, to the judge, to anyone listening, that what happened wasn't right and that there needed to be amends for it. So um, it's complicated in our system, right? I mean, again, our justice system is one that values due process. There are some pieces of that, that are very important. I mean, I I value it, but worked in other countries. I've worked around having people be able to face their accusers, to be able to confront what's said, to be able to challenge their credibility. These are all very important things. There is a price. There is a balance, though, right? And I think it was Judge Cardoza who says, you know, fairness is due the accused, but it's due the accuser as well. We shouldn't narrow it to a filament. You have to keep that balance true. And so for our survivors making sure that when we're fighting, we are pushing back on these narratives that, again, if you're a sexually exploited person, that somehow you lose your right not to consent. That if you have, you know, taking in this information and trying to bring in activities of a victim to really blame them for their own assault and to discredit them so unfairly. Uh, You know, these are areas and opportunities we have to fight back at that. And I think they go well beyond the courtroom.
0: I think it is important for listeners to understand all of the nuances of, of what you just said, that it is hard, right? And there might be things and, and there will be questions and, or someone who doesn't believe you along the, the path, but uh, to, to stick with it, to believe in yourself for that greater good, right? To prevent the, the next generation of harm. I mean, that's also what I hear so many survivors say is that they don't, report usually for themselves. Uh, and it's usually to prevent the next person. I want to stop the harm. I want to prevent this from happening. It's never to, it's never about the offender even like, Oh, I want them to go to jail. I want them to suffer. No, it's always about preventing, uh, the next person. And I know in my own, uh, you know, work and in my own, um, cases and things like that, that's what keeps me going is, is knowing even, you know, we set precedent in New York about um, uh, fees that women can now get uh, in family court, you know, and, uh, and that is, is what keeps it going. Even if that system, the justice system, uh, didn't give me, quote, justice um, in, in the way I which which would have wanted it, it, it did help the next person. And I think that's what um, uh, I think keeps the hope alive in it and in our work, you know, your work in, in trying to to make the change from the inside out and our work in trying to point a finger at those holes and, and, and stuff is, it is a system I do believe in, right? Like you said, the criminal justice system does believe in due process and it is one of the best systems in the world, right? If you think about um, the way in which offenses make their way through, but obviously a lot of room for improvement there and that's what I kind of want to get into next is that, that room for improvement. Um, uh, you know, especially as it relates to sexual assault or gender-based violence offenses, um, and I'm sure you've seen this many, many times, is also the victim being arrested in it or convicted of, of crimes um, themselves, especially if they have experienced harm. You know, sex workers, prostitution, like sex trafficking, all of these things, they themselves get prosecuted for the offense. Um, and studies show that it's, uh, up to 94% of incarcerated women have experienced gender based violence within their lifetimes. Often the thing that led them to be incarcerated is a direct response to that violence, whatever that response may be. So, how do we reckon with this as we start to see, you know, a lot of, um, background checks come into play in 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 the world you know it used to be employment or housing background checks but now we're seeing this big push for dating apps to background check people or social media or even airbnb doing background all of these things right your record is being used in in new ways um and we know that that record isn't always an accurate reflection whether it is the woman's problem of, of the reaction to male violence or even someone wrongfully convicted so many different nuances in there, but, but how do we, how do we handle these, this information being used in those ways when it's not always clear who's at fault, especially as it relates to women in the system?
1: Yeah, I think one of my, um, one of my biggest frustrations with the criminal justice reform movement, which was an important movement, but I think. Looking at the standing up at conviction integrity units and looking at all of the discussion about it, the constant that's left out were the women. Um, and these are you talk about the statistics ahead of time. you know, the individuals who are intimate partner violence victims who've used vic- who've used violence either in legitimate self-defense, and that was not accurately assessed their culpability or, They used illegal violence, but if you understand the context of the situation, they might have been triggering the violence in order to stop a greater abuse later on. Sometimes we know our intimate partner victims will um, trigger an assault so that it happens out of sight of their children or so that they're protecting their children. There's so much context. And again, prosecutors and investigators who are trained on this and are really specialized, look at these cases, look at the context, because you may have a case where someone shouldn't be charged at all and should be removed or you may have individuals who have used violence they've used it illegally and maybe they're it's important that there is some sort of accountability but it's not the type of accountability that they're being charged with and you know certainly a domestic violence victim does not need to go to batter's intervention or does not need to be um you know talk to about abusive behavior this is not an abused person this might be someone who who um, And again, not all, sometimes the illegal use of violence, there still was a consideration that maybe it was necessary for safety. So again, really taking the time to understand this so that you're charging justly, so that you're not putting someone in harm's way. Because when we do that, we know that, so I've talked about intimate partner victims, I'll just stick with that for now, in terms of moving them through a system where now they may be... um, Afraid to call the police again. They may shut down. They may put themselves in a situation where they are the only ones who can protect themselves. So maybe you're talking about a need for increased violence because it really emboldens the perpetrator and it follows a line of exactly what will be said. And just remembering, too, you know, there are other coercive means that we even try to, when our our victims haven't used violence, where we try to get them to participate in a system instead of looking for alternative methods to support them so that they can participate and to prosecute cases with other evidence. We think about sexually exploited individuals, prostituted individuals. I think we've come a long way, although not even nearly as far as we need to, understanding how wrongfully arrested, charged, and convicted they are for prostitution-related crimes. When I say a long way, we are aware. But the data still shows that individuals, and this is, again, where race plays a huge part because Black and African-American women are arrested at a higher rate than other individuals. So that's a disparity, again, that I don't feel like is talked about. But you have those other crimes. You have crimes of um, theft or crimes of substance abuse or other um, misdemeanors or felonies where you have an individual who's a sexually exploited person, and in the investigation, either indicators of that are totally missed, or you have individuals who see them but don't somehow think that they're related. And then you've got individuals going through the system who have been forced to commit the crimes in many cases, or again, they might have committed the crimes, but there might be mitigation if you understood the full piece. So really what we try to do across all of these crimes, we create resources, we consult we train where we're trying to teach the prosecutors and investigators how to look at these cases holistically, how to assess culpability, why it's so important to do so. And so that on the front end, you're avoiding this. And where this has happened on the back end, you know, reminding people they have an ethical duty, a responsibility to remedy harms. And so in these conviction integrity units, making sure. That they're also focusing on these crimes as well
0: and i'm so glad that you brought up other types of crimes i kind of buck i mean i have many different buckets of so offenses i think about that but two broad ones are crimes of desperation right which can be theft it is drug usage it's you know i i desperate to escape my situation whatever version that is and then you have crimes of power and control which are intimate partner violence, but can also be white, a lot of white collar crimes and things like that. And to actually see why is someone desperate? Why are they doing that? You know, and and are they forced to rob the bank? Are they forced to engage in that sex act? Things like that. And, And understanding that I think it's such a critical piece that is often missed. And I think it's a problem with public records. And I'm having my own kind of reckoning with it is, you know, the public record, doesn't tell the full story, no matter what, right, even if they are guilty of it, even if they are actually uh, a bad actor, or if they have been wrongfully um, convicted or arrested, whatever it may be is, is, how do we, you know, how do we deal with that nuance and the culpability and all of those things? If, you know, I think so many people just want black, white, good or bad, right, on these background sh- on these things. And I'm like, I mean, I always say it's like, we've all done bad things right? Like, you know, whether that's speeding down a road, technically illegal, if that's, you know, doing drugs where it's not legal, like all of these things, um, uh, we've all done it. And so to say you're a good person or a bad person, just looking at a public record is not reality. Um, And so how do you how do you feel like about
1: that? I mean, I think, right, you've, I think that again, especially given the business you're in and being thoughtful about it and just thinking about how to create messaging around background checks. I mean, again, you started talking about how so few of the violent cases are actually coming through and being reported. So reminding users that this information does not mean that you're safer, you know, understanding it's Well, you certainly are. I shouldn't say that. I don't want to minimize because we know what happens when perpetrators are allowed to act under the radar. They get bolder, they commit more crimes, and they do horrific things. So I mean, the information in large part is good, but there's caveats. It's both um, under-inclusive and it can be over-inclusive. It can really sweep people in who either, like you said, were forced to commit crimes who were in a state of desperation or were wrongfully convicted. Maybe they didn't have the right, um, the right representation or the system mistreated them in some way. And so I think that's the first piece of it. The second is understanding, again, the partnership, the responsibility. And I think, you know, prosecutors have this ethical duty. I've been very lucky because I've worked in this realm my whole career, basically. And I've had the opportunity to be around very thoughtful, very passionate people who are truly trying to do the right thing and who do take the ethical responsibility to heart. So the one thing to remember is you're dealing with the majority, the overwhelming majority of people who want to do the right thing, who take the ethical responsibility seriously. And so reminding them of the collateral consequences with greater access to this information, it's just another reason to get it right. It's not a greater reason because we should be getting it right no matter who sees it, because the consequences of getting it wrong are so important. I mean, there, no you know, no guilty person should suffer either, you know, um, sorry, no innocent person should suffer either. Guilt shall not escape. Innocence shall not suffer. And we should really be thoughtful about that. But knowing how this information is used, I think we, we need to go back and ensure not even more than we are, just it's another reminder of why it's so important.
0: And, and it's to say, I'm so glad that you said it, is most people I do believe are trying to do good. It's just a broken system in many different ways, you know, um, uh, but that, you know, I always say to, to people is, uh, and, and you kind of touch on it, the criminal justice reform movement, which I'm so happy happened and, and is continuing to have, and we're having these conversations is also though. You're seeing bad actors being able to put doubt into victims' heads or potential future victims if they did the background check and they do see something and they're like, oh well, the criminal justice system is so effed up in many ways or like that they rely, you know, whatever, and then it puts doubt even into those convictions, into those. And we see, you know, many the, the the stories are always publicized of the false convictions, right? Like the truly, you know, they got it really, really wrong here. And I think it. it puts those seeds of doubt in the mind of people. And that's what scares me is like, it, especially I think with domestic violence and gender-based violence, if it gets it through, right? Especially if it is um, a, a, a non-vulnerable person, I'll say that, like generally, it's probably true, right? Something happened there, right? Something did happen there, you know? Uh, we should believe it.
1: Right and again, we because from where I mean, I think the removal of someone's liberty is a devastating thing. So I never want to minimize one crime would be too many. But when you're talking about the exonerated numbers, which are in the hundreds, mid hundreds, and you're talking about the victims who have been victimized and for whom nothing has happened, and perpetrators who have gone on. One hard number we could take are the untested rape kits. Let's just take the four hundred thousand estimated, where nothing happened. And so, when we're really thinking about the magnitude, it's not a one or other. I would like—I mean, I think the people who are focused on really ensuring that the harms that have led to wrongful convictions are remedied and that um, that they are prevented and that they don't happen again—that needs to happen. But equally as important and with a greater magnitude behind it are victims and survivors who are being repeatedly abused because maybe they didn't have access to report or when they did report, no one understood the crime, so they didn't believe them or their case was, you know, fell out of the system for some reason. And that harm is generational and goes on and on. And you have people who just who are not able to protect themselves or not able to stop a perpetrator. So I don't think we need to lose sight of either. It's just the victims have been so silenced and so overlooked here. Uh, We just feel like we need to keep elevating that as well.
0: Mm, and it's it's interesting, even if you see media, like media is so obsessed with bad actors, right? Like you see the dauber story, you see all these things, right? We want to constantly tell, get in the mind of the the perpetrator of bad acts, but we never wanna talk to the victims. We never want to hear their stories, we never wanna center them. And and I say in my work, I have the privilege of standing in rooms where they never talked to a victim before. Like I just I I I was at an event uh with dating. Uh, people in the industry, and they're all talking about how oh they'll call up the the bad actor, the scammer, the romance scammer, and harass them or get into it. And then I just said, "Have you ever talked to one of their victims? Have you ever called them and see how how it happens and so how you can really prevent it?" And they all like they say no, they don't say anything, right? Because it's like it never even crossed their mind to actually talk to a victim. <laughs> <laughs> and,
1: and you have to be careful when you talk to perpetrators. I mean. I- I'm not going to call out any media piece, but I would. I mean, media, the community, people, the population—it's like they have about like a two-second attention span of whatever's thrown, and then it's like moving on to the next thing. But one thing that a, a really great expert uh, working who work with offenders and victims, her name is Nikki Valier, Dr. Valier, always said is you have to be very careful when you put you try to put yourself in the shoes of an offender because. Offenders use behaviors that we may use for good, like nice or trust. They are using these things to commit their crimes. And the second you try to sit in their shoes and try to understand why they did something, you open yourself up to manipulation and you're really, um, really not ever going to truly be able to see it. And I think that, you know, I always think it's we want to talk to perpetrators, we under- want to understand why, but we really have to be thoughtful about the fact that we are we continue to be the audience and we will be manipulated by most perpetrators um, at most times. Not that people cannot make amends or feel remorse, but I would just say across my career, when you really thought about the crime as it was happening and how horrific it was, and at the points where mercy could have been shown or any part of retracting it was never shown at the moment the remorse was happening at the moment of sentencing or some other place and as horrible as it was because it's never even with the most violent criminal who's done the most horrific acts it's not a pleasant thing to think about a sentence for someone like that it's a it's a horrible it's a horrible human tragedy but it just has made me wonder about when the victim needed mercy most and it wasn't given just wine. Sometimes some of that remorse says.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like I always say, is like, I mean, I empathize with a lot of people. I can understand why people do things. I do believe like hurt people hurt people and hurt does not mean physically hurt. It could be hurt by society, being poor, being vulnerable, whatever. Hurt people hurt people, but I can't condone it. I don't condone it. Right. And you had a choice in, in those actions.
1: And I was with a lot of victims who never hurt anybody.
0: Exactly. So it, you know, it's again, it's not, it's not an excuse. It's not a reason uh, for sure. You know, so I, as we kind of look at the the criminal justice system, and, and I do believe, like you said, there, there, you know, it is, it is a good system, and it, it has problems in it. But I'm not an abolitionist, right? I don't believe in abolishing these systems. I hear so many people like just like A. cab and things like that, and I'm sure I've screened that at a protest somewhere too. It's like. I actually you, you you say to a domestic violence victim oh you're experiencing violence but we don't have the police we actually got rid of those like what do you want to do in that moment and things like that but we are seeing this movement towards outside of the criminal justice system which we kind of talked about now and seeing you know that it will never capture all of the harm and even if it the harm that it does capture is not often a public record right people actually can't use that information to then help them make safer decisions for themselves and and the people around them, their communities. You know, we're seeing a lot of folks um, not be able to access the information within the criminal justice system. You know, a lot of stuff isn't a public record. Um, Sometimes only convictions are and then only for so long. But orders of protection aren't. And if you even have that, like so many EEOC complaints, all of these things is like that system only does so much to prevent future harm uh from from occurring um and letting people make those informed decisions about who they're meeting who they're allowing into their life or in their communities whatever it may be and you're seeing the development of these other sources of information to prevent harm we have seen the rise of the whisper networks um, uh, whether that's the shitty media men's list or you know, even platforms starting to share bad actor reports with each other like Uber and Lyft do with sexual assault allegations against drivers. So you're seeing this like, right, that the, the criminal justice system will not always um, capture all of this harm. I would love to hear from you of like, what do you think about first, like whispered networks um, and how those have worked? And, and, um, and we can kind of get into the, the broader set of, of these systems.
1: Yeah. And I'm trying to remember the first time I realized that that existed formally, was formalized, although obviously it was informal. Right. So, I mean, so obviously I have mixed emotions. On the one hand, I completely understand why they exist and they need to exist. You have individuals who perhaps what's happened to them isn't criminal. They're not sure where to go, but something is wrong. And therefore they need to share and protect. Or you may have people who are not ready to engage and participate in the system or who, have and have been rebuffed. So or and the system has let them down. So I understand the need for them and absolutely to try. And again, like you said though, it'll only cap, it's only going to capture some of the people and it's only gonna be able to protect people as much as that information can. And there's the piece of due process that is missing from there. But you know, again, it's basically formalized gossip to try to keep people safe. On the other hand, the reason I mixed, you know feelings, obviously as prosecutors, we don't know about this. So if we're in the system and someone has reported this individual, this is information we may not even understand exists. Now, when we're talking about investigating and prosecuting these cases and we're telling our investigators to think, you know, cast a wide net, to talk to people, to talk to ex-girlfriends, to think about because individuals might have used violence or you might get information in another way, that might, might pick some of it up, but it might not. And so you may have information when we have reported incidents of this. There are legal means to sometimes admit that in trial to show, defer a specific purpose And it might, you know, weigh in to finding other evidence and other things. Um, And, you know, on the other hand, there's another piece, as you were, you know, the whisper network is only as, you know, it's only as protective as the people in the network. So where does privilege play a role in these perpetrators? And we know from our, you know, research on serial offenders that perpetrators, it's not like they have a type that we thought anymore, a lot of them, or do a particular crime, they cross-offend. They commit crimes against other people. So are there individuals who are at harm because only a certain number of people are aware of the individual and their bad behavior and the violence that they're committing? But you know, I completely understand. And I would never hold it against individuals who are trying to keep themselves safe. I mean, that's ultimately what's happening. It's just, I think, raising awareness. For me, as someone in the system, raising awareness within the system that these may exist. And number two, another reason and urgency to improve the system so that you don't have these other informal areas where information is known that we'll never know about.
0: And that's it. It's, it's, there are, you know, who's, who's, who's behind it, who has access to it. I, I've even, you know, I I know a lot of whisper networks um, that are formalized and, and informal. um, And, you're, you're always questioning these things. And that is my big thing is, is um, you know, especially even if someone does have access to a list or something like that, right, but then they see someone that they are friends with, or maybe in a relationship with, and then it, it devolves so quickly because they aren't willing to reckon, oh, that person hasn't caused me harm, that person is nice to me. And then they cause this other person harm and then they go tell, oh, you're on this list. Well, and then it's just like it's crazy. So kind of, you know, it's 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 interesting to see that there is this desire, this demand to share this information outside of of that official system. And, you know, are there I think it'll be interesting to see how how it evolves um, uh, in the reporting outside of the, the traditional criminal justice system. I mean, you even see things like um, uh, accountability networks or uh why am i forgetting the term right now Ugh, something justice uh where offenders like can talk to the victim directly oh restorative justice restorative i knew it was an r yes restorative justice processes happen and stuff like that you know outside of these systems So as we kind of weave our way to the end of this conversation and looking to the future of um, things like the metaverse and the sexual assaults that are already happening, the harassment that's happening there, if you think about, you know, we talked a little bit about for uh, the the non-technical term revenge porn, but even deep fake like revenge porn happening where they actually aren't in the photo. They didn't take the photo, but it's being shared like they did. Etc. How do you see um, the criminal justice system kind of impacting those offenses, holding um, those perpetrators uh, accountable uh, in the digital age?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a lot of a lot of the old. Right. It's a lot of what we have been doing again for almost 50 years, I guess, the 70s, like understanding some of the minimizing that happens. Oh, it's not your real body or, oh, it's a beautiful body you're on. So why is this even a big deal? There's no harm done here. Like understanding the actual harm done to individuals, that psychologically, the the awareness that there's somehow, there's a nude image of them out there or an image of them being assaulted out there and that they have no control over it and that people have seen this and the family and everything else, that that deep psychological harm is real, that it is a sexual crime and that it needs to be taken seriously. So I think some of how to do this is gonna be the courts and prosecutors and actors understanding and the community because the community is ultimately who holds everyone else accountable, who decides what laws are gonna be passed. So I mean, sometimes it's just, don't forget, the actors are just an extension of the community. So it's everyone taking the cases seriously, understanding how harmful they can be, and thinking about the legal challenges that are needed to maybe overcome any impediments that might exist in the current law or in how the law has been analyzed if you've got deep fake situation or something else. And then there's the tech and the digital side, really understanding that, you know, not only again for the investigators and prosecutors, where to get the information, how to tie it to a perpetrator, how to present it to the court, but understanding that you're going to have juries and judges with differing levels of um, tech aptitude and that you're going to be able to have to explain this to them and have experts explain why there's harm, why this is, you know, if it's existing in a metaverse, why it is public or published if it's not out on the street and really trying to bridge that divide between a generation that's, you know, isn't, I don't want to say isn't as comfortable with a virtual reality, but it isn't as real to them as it is to others. And then a jury and their feelings about it, because we know when we're prosecuting rape, one of the big hurdles we have to overcome is, um, you know, that it's not sex. It's actually rape that has happened. And it's because we're so comfortable with one topic, and yet we don't want to talk about it, and then overlaying it on everything else. So again, thinking about your jurors, and the biases they may have about tech and what's harmful and what's not and how to communicate with them. And just one other point, because I know we talked about alternatives. I mean, something to remember, restorative justice has a history. Diversion, what we used to say were cases, we were trying to get cases out of the criminal justice system and think about different treatment and different ways to address the behavior that wouldn't have these negative collateral consequences. And I think it's really important, again, this goes back to the shiny penny thing, for people who are in the system now to be mindful that there's been a lot of work, There have been there's experiential, there's things written that you can learn from that have happened. Even the failures to figure out how to move forward because none of this is new. We have tried this for many times. And in many ways, it hasn't yielded the prevention So I mean, it doesn't mean we should abandon it. It just means we have to keep trying. And the other thing is that many of these alternatives to the system are also victim blaming. I mean, when you think about, and again, we've seen this sometimes overseas, but here as well, whoever has the higher status. So if you have a victim with low status and a perpetrator with higher status then when you're in a restorative justice setting, is there really going to be amends made Are you really going to be able to access that? Is there going to just be the same pressure playing out? So we don't want to just put everything up on a pedestal. We really want to make sure that we're still addressing all these important issues, no matter what the forum is.
0: We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you're interested in learning more about the topics discussed in this episode or about our guest, visit our website at www.garbo.io. Now available, Garbo's new kind of online background check makes it easy to see if someone in your life has a history of causing harm while balancing privacy and protection in the digital age. This episode was produced by Imani Nichols with Whisper and Mutter, and I'm Catherine Kosmetis, and I look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Reckoning.